happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 202, for December the 16th, 2020. We only say 2020 for a couple more weeks. My name is Dr. Wes Fryer, and I am coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we've had a marvelous couple to- couple bouts of snow. Um, we haven't, you know, had any any school snow days, but we had a beautiful snow of maybe three or four inches on Sunday, which, you know, mostly melted and then probably about five or six inches, which was yesterday, almost all day. And it was just glorious. Um, so yeah, welcome to the weather show. No, not really. We're not going to talk about that. Joining me as always from the land of real snow and real winter, Dr. Jason Neifer, who is not afraid to have his state flag right behind him to let everyone remember that he is in big sky country. How is life in the virtual schooling world of Big Sky Country. Well, good evening, Dr. Fryer. It's good to see you tonight. Uh, life as well, serving, you know, kids across the state in distance learning. And I will say it's not been actively snowing here, but we still have snow left over from our last dump. So that's the joy of living in Montana is once the snow's here, it generally sticks around. But, uh, we're looking at what we're, we're keeping an eye on next week to see if we'll have a white Christmas. Um, and in, in my preference, I'd rather have it be, you know, 10 degrees and snowy than 30 degrees and kind of snow on snow off because at least we're not having to deal with the ice rink that comes with that uh, as the snow melts. But I am indeed the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School. Um, and we're just kind of keeping an eye on things, how they play out. And as we mentioned earlier this year, record number of students uh, participating in our program this year, which is probably not a real surprise, but this 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 hour isn't about our well it is about our jobs but only in a broad way it is about news headlines Wes what do we do here at the EdTech Situation Room? Well, this is a place to rant and you know be passionate about issues that we care about, but it's all in the context of looking at the more recent technology news, shining that or peering at that through an educational lens and basically sharing some of our opinions and thoughts when it comes to technology trends and headlines and, and news that may affect us at a personal level or at a professional level at school. So I noticed, Dr. Neifer, that you appear to have a rather large microphone in front. Is that, <laughs> have I just missed that or is that, is that new tonight? Well, it's funny you should say that because I've experienced an interesting tech phenomenon in the last couple of weeks. So this is a new microphone that I picked up this summer as part of what we see here is my new office. Uh, uh, for those of you that are long time, I, I guess viewers of, of the podcast, you wouldn't really see this if you were uh, just listening in via a, a, a mp3 download or a podcast catcher but uh i was originally in a kind of a dark and sad basement office initially and then earlier this year when my job and my wife's job uh, uh moved remotely due to the global pandemic my wife said you know it's time for you to create the office of your dreams so i've been slowly and surely uh i bought a, a nice standing desk that i think i talked about earlier this year which is actually a repurposed uh, uh, uh work table um like a workshop table that you put into a workshop or a garage. I have two of those that are together in an L shape and one of them's got a hand crank on it so I can uh, uh, raise the desk up and down. But as part of that, I wanted to upgrade microphones because I've been using um, a pretty good microphone um, that I liked, but it didn't fit very well on a an arm. 
So the, this long story short, um, I'd been using this microphone for a while, but I noticed when I was on a Teams meeting, I had to be right next to the microphone. Otherwise, you couldn't hear me. That wasn't the case with Google Meets or Zoom. And that tells you how many meetings I'm in that I can tell you the difference between those platforms and how my microphone performs. But I've noticed in the last week and a half that now universally, I need to have the microphone pretty close. I've gone into Windows settings to try to figure that out. But yes, so my microphone is now more omnipresent on the video of the podcast. But I do think... It sends pretty clear sound, so I'm pretty excited with the platform itself. So this isn't a new mic, to be clear. You've had it for a while. It's just that it's now. That's correct. Okay. Yep, and I and I think it's actually standard to when you are in a studio to be relatively close. Yeah, I think to so. a microphone. Um, and you know, I obviously I have the the uh, the wind uh, guard on there too. Um, uh, and I do not have a. Uh, pop filter. Um, although if I'm going to be close like this, maybe I want to, well, you could, if you, if I ever start popping, let me know. Yeah, no, you're, you're good. So my microphone is just barely off, off camera. So since we've also been doing the COVID, I, uh, I think it was like a $15, like very kind of jicky metal, metal arm, but it works and it's yes. clamp, clamped up here. And, uh, I have, you know, uh, I, I have some different temporary um, padding that is that is basically cushioning it for the top of the computer and, and my computer. But yeah, it's it's nice. It's great. I mean, that is certainly something that COVID did back in the spring for us, and you know, I, for for a lot of teachers, um, you know, who are are continuing to do remote learning, that it's 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 caused us to make some investments and really put some some extra thought into. What we're going to be doing in our our home offices because we're spending a lot of a lot of time here. So hello to Peggy George, who's there in our chat room. Glad to have you joining us. And if uh, anybody else is out there, we may have two live viewers now. So if you're a live viewer that can chat us, let us know. Uh, let us know uh, you're out there, and you can even let us know where you are. That's always exciting to know. So where would you like to start tonight, Doctor Neifer? We have a large number of links at edtechsr.com/link. So I will. I, I would be willing to bet a few uh, a few Christmas cookies that we are not going to get through this tonight. <laughs> yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, there were a couple of 2020 articles that we each put one in, and I thought the 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 actually both of them are very intriguing, and I have some thoughts about both. But this one's really quick, but I'm not surprised by this. But it is interesting to think about uh, the Verge report on December 14th that the webcam is the gadget of the year. And the reason why I was interested in this is for a couple of reasons. First, I will tell you that personally, I updated webcams this summer. Um, I obviously spent a lot of time on virtual meetings, which was generally true before the pandemic. A lot of the collaboration I do, especially with friends and colleagues um, outside of Missoula, Montana, uh, elsewhere in Montana, or outside the state, I mean, that's a lot of, of Zoom and GoToMeeting and now Teams and Meets calls. So certainly that was the case before, but um, I did update to a 1080p cam as opposed to a 720p cam. And the 720p cam I'd been using was, I think, nine years old. I wouldn't look at the model number, and I did update myself. But the 
reason why I put this article in is because I do think that a lot of the barriers of productive video conferencing have been broken down because of COVID. And you know, you're starting to see businesses. I know Google announced, and I was going to put the article in, but there's not enough detail or, 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 or pieces of information yet that I think can provide some, some insights. But Google is going to do some kind of hybrid scheduling model when they reopen and their current scheduled reopening for, uh, in, business uh, office work uh, and, and, and and leaving the, the work at home environment is September. And we'll see how the vaccine uh, dissemination goes in the next couple of months to know if that's a reality. But something I was saying today, I was speaking actually to a member of the Montana House of Representatives uh, in preparation of the upcoming session. But I mentioned that, you know, I do think that I, I value face to face interactions very much. And there are times when, you know, uh, uh, when something's going on and it, the, the, they're not too far away from me. I'm better off to just get in a car and go deal with something and make face-to-face interactions. But there's a lot of productive things that can happen in video conferencing. And I feel like we've broken down some barriers that we can easily, with even people we don't regularly work with, hop on a video conference and have it not be that big of a deal. Like it's a relatively minor thing to do. Um, to be able to do that. And so, you know, I think the verge makes the call there that obviously we're much more comfortable with video conferencing now, but you know, having virtual dinners with friends or, um, you know, that are far away, or I've been to a number of virtual happy hours this year to, uh, meet and collaborate with colleagues that I know professionally. But if we were at a conference, we'd go out and get a beer at five o'clock. And it's just really nice. I think to maybe continue that tradition to say the video conferencing is a meaningful way to connect with Absolutely. Man, I can't wait. That makes me think of the Moodle moot or the, the mountain moot. Yep. Uh, and, you know, it'll be so wonderful when we when we are hopefully vaccine powered to put this pandemic era behind us and and make those face to face connections because it was a great virtual conference. And obviously a huge reason that was so great was you all have so much synergy and and connection there. But man, that is my favorite kind of face-to-face conference now. Absolutely. I don't know if I'll go back to ISTE or not. Uh, I did the virtual, but those kind of small conferences to be able to make those connections are, they can be magical. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then Wes, you shared a really interesting article too, that I have some thoughts on as well. Yeah. Uh, I'll actually, I should have been dropping, dropping our links and we're trying, I'm trying now, or we're trying to drop our links into our chat and as we as we talk about them. So this is an article from Wired magazine, which I thought was fascinating. It's from December 12th. It's called 2021 will launch the platinum age of privacy. And so we can probably have you date yourself a bit uh, if we were to ask you about Napster, for instance, if you remember that, you know, age of privacy, uh, the article says that was really the first golden age of pri- piracy not privacy, piracy. The second golden age was really Pirate Bay, which which got shut down finally. Um, and what's about to happen is directly due to COVID. We are about to see a number of studios and groups launch their videos or their, their movie tracks, not tracks, whatever, their films directly to streaming platforms and they're going to bypass the movie theater. And it's been kind of a tradition and just historical that when these new Hollywood films come out, the theaters get them first. And that has been a huge reason why, you know, people go to the theater and there's a period of time where it's theater only. And then after they, I don't know, peak and and start to decline, I don't know how they exactly figure that out. They end up, you know, putting it out there on streaming platforms. Well, what this article is pointing out, it's, it's just really fascinating, is the number one, 
um, you know, movie pirates are going to have direct access to digital versions immediately, even though, you know, Hollywood, they're going to continue to try to do digital rights management stuff. I mean, there's ways to circumvent that. And so those films are going to be out there. But what the author of the, of the article also says is this is not going to be a big deal for Disney, especially because Disney has invested in Disneyland, Disney World, Disney Cruises, these face-to-face experiences that people will pony up not just hundreds, but like thousands of dollars, you know, to take their their uh, friends and loved ones, their families to. And it's actually making a case that Netflix and other, you know, big entertainment companies are going to need to invest in properties that are going to be able to be part of the experience economy. And I think that's a pretty interesting word. Uh, attention economy is a favorite one I have, but experience economy, postmodern era, you know, whatever we, we do, we pay for experiences. What are the things that, that people are going to pay for? Um, you know, a, a, a great night out, a, a great meal, um, you know, some kind of, of, of entertainment. That's what we pay for. So, thought it was super interesting and it makes a lot of sense. So what are your thoughts about that, Jason? Well, I have a very specific um, uh, example of where uh, the piracy question still remains a little complicated because for the longest time, a lot of, of, I wouldn't necessarily call them piracy advocates, but piracy apologists would say things like that digital rights management and the inability to control your own physical media, plus the fact that there was so many lacking, so many media properties lacking access in a meaningful way. And so, you know, for example, that, that they only released it on, on, on DVD and the DVD wasn't sold anymore and they want access to X, Y, and Z movie. And streaming's really changed that discussion quite a bit, right? That the fact that it's really dead easy to get access to uh, hundreds of television series, thousands of movies for a relatively inexpensive amount of money per month. But um, there's a really specific example here. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast. I do. I'm a little ashamed at an addiction that I have. Um, it's to the show The West Wing. And it was a, a drama series in the late 90s and early 2000s. It ran for seven seasons. And I can't even tell you the number of times that I've actually been through the whole series. It's oh, like wow. background noise for me. And I love it. It's really well written. I'm a big fan of Aaron Sorkin. It's, it's a good series. And uh, Netflix announced earlier this year that they would no longer be streaming the West Wing and uh, that that and I might understand is that's moving to HBO Max. But the the thing that's that's interesting to me about actually about all of this is that, um, uh, you know, if we are we have all these major streaming services now and they're starting to fight over big media properties like The Office is also leaving Netflix and it's going to be two seasons for free on Peacock, which is NBC's new streaming service. But you have to subscribe to the advanced or pro version of Peacock to get the entire series. I think you're going to find that uh, piracy is going to be a bigger piece of the pie because people don't want to subscribe to seven services a month and the point of what you're doing that you're not saving any money it's more convenient than cable but you're not saving any any money over cable and that becomes i think a real challenge and it still doesn't feel like we have this dialed in right like uh uh you know for a while uh a couple weeks ago when everyone was reminded that the west wing was leaving netflix and i happened to read some west wing message boards and again i I, shamefully nerdy but the bottom line is is that you know for a while you couldn't even get the dvds they were they they were low on stock for a while because people were trying to buy them to be able to do that and that that personally holds no interest to me um because um i don't even own a dvd 
multiplayer anymore, so I would need a streamed version of it. So I'm going to have to go cold turkey um, uh, starting on December 25th. But, you know, we're still... Um, we're still not, we still haven't dialed this in yet. We're a lot closer than we used to be because of streaming services. And I do think that, that my understanding of the statistics that, that pirating music has gone down dramatically since Spotify. But let's remember Spotify is really every, uh, song ever, right? And there's no real competitive, to, competitor to Spotify. There are competitors, but the vast majority of people are on Spotify. Apple, Apple Music, you don't think is, is up there uh, as a competitor? It may be for, for a subset of Apple users, but my guess is, is there are more Apple users are using, I'm sorry, more, uh, uh, well, yeah, Apple users are using Spotify than, that are using Apple Music. And there's things like Tidal, which is, uh, uh, which I actually subscribed for a little while because I like the, the quality of, of, of the music streams, but yeah. So, uh, that's, that's, it's an interesting development to me and we'll have to see if piracy makes a, a, a healthy return, um, uh, to savvy computer users that want to get access to media and not jump through hoops. Well, this is months ago and it might even be a couple years ago. We can say that, right? Cause what have we been doing this for like three years now? It's been a while. It's almost four. Is it really? Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We're starting to get old here. Um, <laughs> We covered an article I remember that was talking about like before Disney Plus, and this is when the announcement, oh, Disney's going to do a streaming service. They were like, enjoy it now, folks, because right now you probably have more streaming media choices with Netflix than you'll ever have before because the future we're headed is where we are now with multiple platforms charging monthly rates. And pretty soon we're going to find ourselves, even if we have cut cable, possibly, you know, paying what we were paying before or maybe even paying more. Um, we're having some conversations at our house about these subscriptions. And, you know, your Geek of the Week a few weeks ago, Jason, was to go ahead and audit all of our little charges. I came this close to actually, you know, canceling a debit card just to, just to start fresh, right? Because, you know, it takes time to go in there and change those cards. I, I've, I've made a few changes, but anyway, it's, uh, we, we talk about New Year's resolutions. It's worthwhile considering as you enter the new year, you know, how many different streaming platforms do you need? Uh, because what the industry is going to obviously want you to do is, is have a whole bunch of them. Isn't it interesting how we will stream media and pay for that, but we're not going to pay for articles and journalism. It really, it really is kind of a wild world. And I would say the journalism stuff is even more important than the entertainment stuff is, but you know, there we're, we're, we're paying, paying quite a bit. And it looks like we're on the, tra on a trajectory to pay even more. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Where to next? Well, uh, I want to cover some Google stuff that's happened both this week, and I carried a couple articles over from last week. First and foremost, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that on both Monday and Tuesday, there were widespread Gmail outages. It also impacted some subservices of Google. I did not experience any of the outages myself, but my understanding, there were points uh, that uh, uh, where you couldn't even, like, you couldn't send to Gmail addresses, like, uh, that emails were bouncing, according to message boards uh, that I was uh, keeping a, a track of, um, uh, including the the Google IT directors, uh, uh, Google Currents Board. People were talking back and forth about about odd things, and it's just a reminder that I mean, I I trust Google's uptime, and I can't think of an outage that was really that substantial to me in the you know uh, ten years that I've been uh, administering our Google domain. But it's not infallible, and as it turns out, sometimes it goes down. 
yeah, I was affected just because I was up early that day. I think it was maybe just an hour that we had outage, but it was certainly a uh, time to give pause of, oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're all Google Classroom. Uh, basically, I mean, Seesaw for younger grades, but middle school and high school, it's all Google Classroom and we're all Gmail and, you know, everything is there in that universe. So uh, we'll talk a little bit probably later in the show about some security articles and some hacks. Um, so it was weird, like thinking, hmm, are these connected? This this doesn't this doesn't feel good. So glad that I was back up. And of course, Google engineers are hard at work. And I mean, as I was tech director at our school for four years, it's wonderful to have outsourced that stuff because the the downtime of Google's products is is just you know minuscule. Um, shout out to Travis True, who I think shared maybe it was on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Google has a great status page. So at moments like that. Um, that's a, the, that's a good thing to check to see, you know, the extent to which a particular service or services are not available. And they usually will have some notes and things like that. But I don't think Google has come out with any kind of explanation yet. Have they, Jason, about what happened? I saw a vague reference to some kind of cloud storage, something, 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 but, uh, I skipped past it. I would imagine that, that I don't like, I, I it doesn't seem like it's nefarious actors. So that's good. Yeah. We haven't heard anything yet. I yeah. don't think so. Then probably a bigger article for me is that and this was reported in a lot of different locations, including both the major Chrome blogs. But Google has acquired Neverware, which is a company we've talked about the podcast, I'm guessing, four or five times uh, at my insistence because I love Neverware's cloud ready product. And for those that 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 have not followed uh, uh, you know, my discussion journey here on this, uh, uh, cloud ready is an installable version of the Chrome operating system. And you've always been able to install what's called Chromium OS, which is the open source version of the Chrome operating system, but it, it required you to build it from scratch, which means take all the code and turn it into something installable. And there have been a lot of attempts at doing this, but up until, I, I, you know, I think it was three or four years ago uh, when Cloud Ready jumped on the scene, it was really wonky and it, it wasn't usable, right? It wasn't something that um, uh, uh, made any sense for, for the typical user. And, and, then, it, and it definitely wasn't enterprise. I mean, no, it was more of a DIY, I'm going to yep. do this at home. It wasn't, I'm going to take this to school or work. Right. And it's also wasn't something you could put on, you know, grandma or grandpa's computer and hand it to them either, because, you know, if, it, if, if suddenly there was kernel panic, then, you know, there would be no way to remotely uh, troubleshoot that. But um, Neverware came along. They used to they started as a company that that made a version of Linux that was intended to be a maintenanceless uh, uh, Linux distribution for slower, older computers. But the premise of, of, of Cloud Ready is that they took open stores Chromium OS and built it for a number. And right now I think there's hundreds of supported computers that are all, all older machines where they wouldn't be very successful at running a full blown windows or Mac OS operating system. And the first time I installed it, it bl absolutely blew me away. And I've probably installed it on 25 computers now, 25 different computers now. And in fact, one of my primary machines uh, is a, um, a, a, a cloud ready, uh, uh, Dell, not Dell, excuse me, a Lenovo uh, X230. So that's the um, the uh, smaller, more portable, ultra portable models that Lenovo puts out that makes a wonderful Chromebook. And I love it. It's one of my favorite uh, uh, pieces of software ever. Well, a couple of years ago, they announced that they were, in fact, they, at, at the last ISTE I went to, so that would be in Chicago, um, they were... Um, 
they were under Google's tent uh, out at the trade show. So you could go and, and see Neverwhere at the Google booth. And then they were purchased by Google in the last 24 hours. And there's been a lot of discussion about this. I was just reading the comments in the About Chromebooks article, Kevin Tofel's blog about, about Chrome OS to kind of get a sense of the debate. But a lot of people are worried, I guess, that Chrome will buy these, these folks, or I'm sorry, that Google will buy these folks and then shut them down. I think that makes zero sense. Uh, from the standpoint of, I think Google makes more off of people utilizing the Chrome, um, the, the Chrome operating system than they would out of any hardware or licensing sales. In fact, I think the licensing is almost free for manufacturers that want to make Chromebooks, but it's such a wonderful way you can legitimately take a 10 year old, uh, Windows machine and turn it into a fast feeling, um, a Chrome, uh, OS style operating system. So I thought that was an interesting turn of events yeah it'll it'll be interesting to see we've been talking on the show about some different different changes that google has made and um i don't know i and i i haven't heard anybody talk about from an insider standpoint you know some of these changes and and then also where education kind of fits in and and that kind of thing so uh, you know a lot of acquisitions are just about talent they're about you know getting people who can come join your team uh, and that's from what I understand, you know, as the outsider to Silicon Valley uh, acquisition. So it, it, you know, if it follows a pattern of others, then these are really smart folks that figured out how to do Chromium on other devices better than anybody else or how to do Chrome OS. And so maybe Google just wanted them to be a part of their team to, um, you know, in, in continue to improve their product. Maybe. Who knows? And then I want to make one other one other article for this week um, that we actually carried over from last week. Uh, this is actually a follow up. From a story reported, uh, actually a couple times on the podcast, but, uh, Google Cloud Print is dead, uh, as of January 1st, 2021. And the good folks over at Chrome Unboxed put together a list of 12 alternatives to using Google, uh, Cloud Print. And I have to say, I'm going to have to do something in my own home because that's how, uh, everyone in my house, in other words, me and my wife, um, access our printer right now. And so, um, I did notice, uh, when I did spend some time on Monday, um, uh, looking to update my printer, with the firmware, which actually takes away the cloud ready to makes it easier to pair up as a direct net printing uh, printer. Um, and I messed the whole thing up. So I'm going to reset that and then update the firmware again of the printer. But if you need some ideas or if you happen to be working in a school and you haven't been planning for this, um, there are lots of interesting um, uh, alternatives on that list, including some enterprise level tools. There, some of them are, are, are free and some of them are for cost that you might be able to implement that would uh, mimic a lot of the great features of cloud printing. I'm thankful that I'm not responsible for this anymore. I mean, it was lovely to be responsible for all, all cyber, all hardware, all everything in our school for four years, but I'm really, I really am enjoying teaching and, and uh, you know, getting to hide in my room this year. Um, but Printing was a big issue and remains unresolved as far as as far as our school, like needing to have a more collegiate environment where, you know, students can walk up with whatever kind of device they have able to gain access not only to Internet, of course, but also to the possibility of printing. And then either have, you know, a quota of free black and maybe they maybe they can print whatever black and white, you know, maybe they have color, maybe they don't. Maybe you're going to have them pay no matter what. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting the different policies that schools have about that. You know, in some cases to try to really encourage students and teachers to go green and and not print a whole lot. But 
we still do need to print things. And, um, you know, something that is a, a unified solution where ideally, you know, bring your device, open up your, your smartphone, your tablet, your computer, whatever it is. And, you know, being able to securely and safely from a network standpoint, you know, not granting these guests and, and users more access to the network than they need, being able to print, that is a an important thing. So I will be hopeful that we'll have something like that emerge. Um, there's a lot of convoluted parts to, to printing in different places, and our school is no no exception to that. So, uh, well, I'm not going to go to the security articles next. I was thinking, man, I put so many in here. Jason may just kick me off the podcast and tell me to go make my own <laughs> like dystopian security hacking, you know, podcast or show. And I really wouldn't want to just just talk about that. But um, it is Google related. I split it off on its own category tonight, and I called it AI bias and racism. And so I'll share a couple articles that I read earlier in the week and then some new ones that I just found. First one's from The Guardian. More than 1,200 Google workers condemn the firing of AI scientist Timnit Gebru. Uh, shout out to the Twit This Week in Tech podcast for talking about this. This is a very troubling situation. Um, she uh, is a very well-known researcher and um, was part of a, an important team at Google that was supposed to be independent in terms of looking at Google's policies and and programs. And, and uh, she had published a groundbreaking study talking about AI and how AI, you know, tends to be racially biased and it's, it's trained on data sets, right? And so my understanding is is a big part of that is is that the data sets did not reflect a very diverse you know sample of of humanity and so there was a lot of bias there well she evidently gave google an ultimatum because they were blocking the publication of of a new um journal article that she had published with some others and they fired her uh and there's been a huge snafu and for 1200 google employees you know to protest that's a that's a pretty big deal MIT Technology Review on December 4th wrote an article um, that is titled, uh, and this is by Karen Howe. I have another Karen Howe article here as well. We read the paper that forced uh, Timnit Gebru out of Google. Here's what it says. And, you know, it doesn't really make sense in terms of if you're going to be supporting, you know, your, the research and, and you're, you're not just having people push an agenda, but like you, you actually want them to do genuine academic research. Why would you fire someone because, you know, you, you disagreed with what they said or it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't done well. And, and that was part of the allegation here from Google. And so these newer articles shed a little more light on this. Uh, BBC News on 14 December, um, has a long interview with Timnet Gebru, uh, in which it's titled Google and big tech are quote institutionally racist. And so she's detailing what it has been like to be in the spotlight. She did not ask to be in the spotlight. It's been pretty uncomfortable, but the, uh, information, the, the perspective that she has to share on not just Google, but other big tech companies in Silicon Valley is really, really not good. And then the last one is also from MIT Technology Review. This is a Karen Howe article as well. And she titled this, I started crying inside Tim McGebrew's last days at Google and what happens next. So I think this is a hugely important issue for us to amplify and talk about. Like we, I think I'm going to actually, well, we're about to go to Christmas break, but when we return and we'll be remote, I may consider sharing this as a, as a, as a link. I don't know. I just, 
I may, I don't know if I'll do an AI unit, sixth grade. I'm, I'm repeating, you know, most of my units that I did in, in my first trimester. But like, it's so important that we recognize the importance of ethics and our values. And as coders, as creators, you know, we will either consciously or unconsciously uh, imbue the software and, and the, and the, in the, uh, algorithms that we create with our values and and with our biases. And so this is is not just I wouldn't even say a black eye in Google's I don't know why they do this as they were pointing out on the Twit podcast like what is it called the Streisand effect? I mean this amplifies it even more. If you didn't want people to be paying attention to this, firing her in this way, you know, shines a huge spotlight on her work on what they're talking about and and she is criticizing in the in the article in this article, which has not yet been published, she is pointing out that these huge language data sets have some real problems. And therefore, I think we should be throttling back our utilization of them uh, and, and checking some of the things that we're doing. So anyway, I don't think I would have heard of this article at all if it hadn't been for the, the Twit podcast and just kind of randomly, I have like, you know, hundred something podcasts. And so I'm like, Hey, what do I want to listen to? Let's just listen to twit. This is a little bit random, but very important article, a very important issue. Um, had you heard about this before, Jason? I knew about the firing, um, because, uh, there's been some, uh, a couple of articles about the, uh, about, uh, Sudar Pichai, uh, apologizing for the intrigue, but mentioned they didn't apologize for firing, um, the scientist, but um, like you start to dig into this and yeah, I, I would like to read that article now too. And even though that's a topic that interests me, it wouldn't have been on my radar either. So it is interesting how that plays out. Yeah. And again, this points to how important good journalism is. You know, yeah. I really do enjoy the MIT technology review um, and um, I'll just, you know, commend if you're going to read any of those articles, I would, I would commend the uh, Karen Howe articles. Awesome. All right. Well, let's do some quick Apple news here. Um, so, uh, I, my MacBook Pro will be here on January 10th. Uh, I did go ahead and, and, and order that as, as, as part of, um, uh, uh, our standard tech refresh at work. And it actually was one of the cheaper uh, computers we bought because the, the MacBook pros are inexpensive in comparison to like a similarly priced Dell, for example. But um, uh, there are some Apple quick Apple things I want to talk about. And then one, I want to dig in a little deeper. First Firefox has announced that their uh, latest version is M1 native, which means that it works with the new chips uh, uh, natively as opposed to going through the Rosetta, um, uh, emulation layer. So that's really good news. Uh, Microsoft, uh, now has taken native office apps out of beta. And so when you download Microsoft office for Mac, it is native to M1. My understanding is that, uh, they are, um, a super, um, uh, uh, super speedy um, on the new M1 platform. Um, I continue to watch reviews in part because I have very strongly considered perhaps buying a Mac mini for home. Um, one of the 16 gigabyte uh, Mac minis. I've decided I'm probably going to wait to find out what 2021 brings in regards to that, because there are some interesting pro chips that are in the mix, but um 
what I'd like to do, Wes, is talk about uh, uh, an article regarding Facebook and Apple. But first, can you uh, talk about the Mashable article that you threw into the the uh, article notes tonight? You bet, because it is directly related to what that Facebook article uh, that you're going to talk about says. Um, Mashable today on December 16th, latest iOS update shows all the way all the ways Facebook tracks you. There are a lot, and we have been talking on the show uh, on and off, and I think. Um, Last week we were we were talking about this as far as privacy and and Jason you were giving a shout out to Apple for what they're having developers do they're requiring disclosure of the ways in which our data as you know users of iPhones and, and Apple devices um, is going to be utilized and so this latest version of of uh, iOS does have that and I I was thinking shoot I need to update this to, to take a look at this before the show now of course the question one question is going to be is this going to make a difference you're going to see all of these different ways and this article from Mashable has a lot of screenshots and it is pretty incredible I need to write a blog post I, I don't know if I said it in the show last week but be, you know all these articles will tell you, though, your phone doesn't listen to you and, and it's just it's not listening at all. And I I had one of those completely weird situations and I took a screenshot where I had not searched for this. I just talked to my wife about this, you know, and then later that evening, what is my Instagram ad showing me? But it's exactly, you know, what I was what I was talking about. Actually, I think it was tamales because we were talking about I don't know. My parents aren't on and we haven't actually ordered this, but Pedro's tamales in Lubbock, Texas. They're so good. You can order them to be shipped anywhere in the world. That's a completely uh, uncompensated uh, free promo there. Um, you know, why did Wes suddenly have and I've never seen it before an ad in, in Instagram for Texas tamales? That that was not a coincidence. And a lot of people have had those kind of experiences and they can tell you those stories. So uh, kudos to Apple for requiring this. Uh, what impact is this going to have? Is it going to change, you know, user behavior? Is it going to change developer and corporate behavior? Um, Peggy's asking if it picked it up from Alexa. Um, I, yeah, we don't, we're, we're in the, the Google ecosystem. So Google home, uh, you know, possible, uh, it's possible that it did, but in the screenshots that are in this Mashable article, it actually talks about audio clips or, you know, there's, there's a, there's a reference there to, to using audio. I'll have to search through it again to, to find it, but all these different things, what kinds of, what do we do? You know, other kinds of data and somewhere in here, you know, it, it did talk about developers using audio data. So Jason, how does this connect to this ad that I guess has been run prominently by Facebook. Well, um, I'm not sure if I can speak right now because my finger hurts from scrolling through those many screenshots of the things that, that, that Facebook is collecting via their app. Holy dog. I had no idea. Uh, well, first of all, um, how, how extensive the, the Apple, uh, labeling would be good on them. But more importantly, like, I guess I, I, I knew that generally that, that Facebook would be significant in the data that it, it stores and uses. But man, that's, that's extraordinary. But, um, today, um, Facebook, I, I strikes back, I guess is the best way of saying this. Uh, they took out some full page ads in, in, in a select number of newspapers, um, in the United States. The, the nine to five max says it's at least three. Um, and, uh, they also published a blog post today that, um, uh, they are saying that this new movement towards 
towards, uh, uh, well, uh, I, I don't know the way of putting this. They're trying to make it sound like they're going after advertising companies. Um, but more importantly, the reason why they're doing it, according to the ad, this is quoting the ad, we're standing up to Apple for small businesses everywhere. Um, at Facebook, small businesses are at the core of our business. More than 10 million businesses advertise uh, each month to find new customers, hire employees, engage with their communities. And they believe that, or their argument is that by, uh, you know, telling users about the amount of data that, that they use for the purpose of targeting advertising, that they believe that people will choose not to, uh, 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 share that data or, or, or get off the app entirely. And they say, in their words, this will be absolutely devastating to small businesses, adding to the challenges they face right now. And I guess I would say I'm offended in part because I run a small business and, um, I know, uh, I've actually run a couple of small businesses. I know that the, uh, I mean, I'm not paying the customers to come to me. I'm paying Facebook to advertise to them. So the money making here really is Facebook. Um, but second, I would also say that, um, uh, it's just so disingenuous to make this entirely about small business because it, it's true. I think we have a real problem on the internet because advertising makes the internet go round and we, we haven't come to terms with that yet. The tech correction we talk about in this podcast pretty frequently, I think is about coming to terms with the fact that the free internet comes with extraordinary problems that we need to deal with. But the bottom line is, is that to say that, that by pointing out to users that a certain app uses data in a certain way, and users may be thinking twice about that is somehow an affront to small businesses I find to be somewhat disingenuous. Your thoughts, sir? So I'm going to put this link in the in the show because I mentioned it last week and this week. This was Twit 800, the 800th episode of This Week in Tech. Uh, Jason Snell, who runs the uh, website Six Colors, had, had a, a pretty good point in that podcast saying that the quantity of information that is collected by these companies is not needed for advertising. You know, salespeople and advertising, well, actually salespeople love data and people buying ads love data too, but we're at a point of complete overkill with respect to data harvesting. That Mashable article has 16 different screenshots of the information that is harvested. That's a good word from us through the Facebook app and on, on screenshot 14. So it's three from the end underneath user content. It does say audio data. So your audio data is used for app functionality. We are at a point that it, it, it what this is going to take, if you want to buy into what, what the social dilemma documentary says for the tech correction, it's, it's going to take folks rising up and, Speaking, you know, unfortunately, it's going to probably take people getting angry, but it's going to take political involvement. Uh, it's going to take folks who are going to, you know, push some people to change. And that could be the tech companies, but it, it also could be that that government um, steps in. And we talked on the show the last couple of weeks about the new uh, attorneys general, 48 of the attorneys general, along with the FCC, you know, filing against Google. And uh, and now we've got, you know, this this filing. Well, actually, was that the one against Facebook? I think that might have been the one against Facebook. And then, you know, before that earlier, you know, in, in the month or in those November, it was in the last few weeks, we had a filing uh, for Google against, you know, monopolistic behavior. So, um, yeah, I think it's 
we need to have some transparency to what's happening here. Uh, opacity means you cannot see. And right now there is general opacity between the users and the companies who are collecting this data. We don't in the United States have the right to ask for that data and, and to be able to see it. And so I really, you know, agree a hundred percent with what you said last, last time, Jason, that in making this move with its developers, uh, Apple is pushing the industry. And while they're not requiring anything of advertisers, they are requiring things of app creators, which is something that Apple has control over. And so I think this is moving in a positive direction, but I don't, I don't think it's going to, it's going to change quickly. Right. And I just would also point out that just for me personally, this, I, I, that the privacy, uh, 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 dashboard, I don't know what the, the warning label, whatever they're calling that. I will say that's probably punched my ticket to move back to iOS. And um, I, I had felt that for some time that iOS was pretty stagnant and uh, uh, not evolving very quickly. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, Apple's, Apple's earning my business back and I don't, uh, I'm not particularly in the position right now to, to move towards, uh, even a used iPhone. So I, I, it's, it's not right away, but my next phone will probably be, uh, an iPhone and my next tablet will probably be, uh, uh, a, an iPad because, um, I, I, you know, I, do make exchanges of my personal data pretty regularly. I'm mindful of that, but to have that extra data and especially with, you know, uh, questionable returns. And I'm not saying necessarily that's Facebook, but there are lots of apps. I'm sure I do trade a lot of private data for that are just not worth it for me. And I I'd like to know that information. I think that's pretty important. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have been listening to the podcast for any <laughs> period of time, you should recognize this as a seismic, you know, statement and uh, change from Dr. Neifer. So yep, it's I, been a while. I'm excited for you and it'll be, it'll be interesting. We had a conversation um, at school this week about the M1 processors and the fact that this is Gen 1, right? Typically with, with an Apple technology, you know, the second and, and subsequent iterations are even better and, and sometimes by, quite a bit. So exciting to hear what that's going to be like and probably, you know, contemplating what this will be like maybe in the summer if we if we get one of these M processor powered laptops for our daughter who will be a senior next year. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, can I hit a couple of security articles? Please do, sir. Okay, well gosh, there's a lot. Uh first off, this is the daily uh, New York Times podcast uh, from today, a really good summary of this called Hacked Again. Uh, we talked on the show last week about FireEye, which is one of the pre preeminent, um, you know, cyber companies in the world. And, and they disclosed and, and had FBI and, and other, you know, U.S. officials talking about this disclosure. Well, it turns out, thanks to FireEye getting hacked, they went through 50,000 lines of code, according to one of these articles, and they found that, hey, this was um, something that affected the government. And now uh, we're hearing that it affected like maybe 18,000 different companies. So Bloomberg reported on December 14th, FireEye discovered SolarWinds breach while probing its own hack. Uh, it wasn't the government folks. It was, you know, uh, private companies. Um, and it was going through a lot of different code. But evidently, we might just be scratching the surface. What's weird about this, and they talk about this in the the interview 
um, in the daily today is that we were feeling, I think, generally pretty good about cyber because the election, I mean, ooh, it didn't seem like we had election systems hacked. And, you know, before he was fired by the president, our, our director of uh, election security announced this was the most secure election ever in, in U.S. history. But apparently, and it wasn't just Department of Commerce, Department of Treasury, it may have been other, even Department of State and, and some other U.S. agencies, maybe these state actors have been in since March for a long time. And SolarWinds, which is this Austin-based company that monitors, you know, servers and networks, is really, an ex- they're, they're used extensively. Um, so this uh, slate on this, today, December 6th, December 16th um, has an article, what we do and don't know about the massive federal government attack. FireEye is not saying they can say which state actor it is. I mean, it's probably either China, Russia, or Iran, maybe North Korea, but nobody's saying that right now. And most, th- most people seem to be thinking Russia. Um, but, um, you know, what, what are we going to do about this? Um, Ars Technica po- posted on the 14th, SolarWinds hackers have a clever way to bypass multi-factor authentication. Um, they were in the systems and they were in, in Microsoft's, you know, uh, Outlook systems. And so once they had compromised that system, they were able to basically counterfeit a, you know, uh, Part of the key that that was being used for I, I don't know it sounds like setting a cookie I'm I'm well beyond the edge of my geek quotient here trying to talk intelligently about this but basically because they had compromised the server that server could not uh, you know securely allow for two factor authentication so the extent of of these hacks is is not completely understood. And, and evidently, we're going to be hearing more about this soon. There was a U.S. Uh, congressman who was in a classified briefing and basically just tweeted he was really scared and felt like we should disclose as much of this as we can to the public to know what has happened and what the situation is. In addition to this hack, I also have a couple articles here, and I'm not going to read them all, uh, but for, they're from Harrods and Security Boulevard and OP Innovate. And they're talking about Israel. There's a massive Iranian-based hack happening with a new flavor of ransomware that they say has been – I read a bunch of these articles, which were, again, pretty pretty deep. And, and so at the risk of saying too much about this, um, it's basically uh, ransomware that, that isn't a, a derivative or um, – you know, uh, based off of another code base. It, it was a completely new code base and they've been operating primarily uh, in Israel. Um, they, the threat actor is evidently Iran, but this stuff is serious. So if you, here's a, here's the, you know, quick little impact. If your school, if your organization is not keeping excellent backups and does not have plans in place what you would do if a ransomware attack were to happen with your data, then uh, you you need to get on that right now because there are so many different organizations that have been hit by ransomware and continue to, uh, and this is this is criminal behavior that pays off. And so evidently, this new um, it's called what is it pay pay to key. Um, you know, there's there's some folks saying, hey, this this is prime to, you know be much more expansive than it, than, than it is today. Your thoughts, Dr. Neifer. Oh, you're muted. Well, um, I, I'm interested to hear more, more details and there have been some pieces of this leaking out. I would just say that 
I can't imagine that we've underinvested in cybersecurity uh, at, at the government level in the last four or five years and ignoring whatever you may feel about the last administration, the current administration, the next administration. My guess is, is that Congress has aggressively funded uh, a lot of cybersecurity initiatives. And the fact that this was going on for so long um, and undetected until relatively recently um, I, I think just tells you the, the sophistication of these actors. Um, I would also tell you, Wes, you mentioned uh, good advice for uh, uh, for school districts backing up data. I would also add to that that um, I know a lot of schools, including my own, they've been target of phishing attacks uh, this last weekend. Um, uh, everyone on my staff was text, texted from a number claiming to be the boss, uh, signed by the boss's name, saying that, that he needed uh, help on something on a Sunday. No one answered back. Um, uh, everyone thought it was weird. Everyone checked in with, with me directly to see if that was the situation. Uh, the same day we received, uh, uh, four or five, uh, mass emails to members of, of, of my staff, some including a, um, a zip file that had a spreadsheet in it that had a link to go to a fake login page. So, you know, straight up phishing attacks and, uh, now's the time if you're not, if you are in IT or, or, or building or district leadership and you're not regularly informing your faculty and staff about the risk and asking them to be extremely cautious, uh, now is absolutely 100% the time to do so. Indeed it is. Any other articles you'd like to, well, I guess we, we actually have seven minutes, so we don't have to geek of the week rush it. Um, couple more things you'd like to, to hit? We got some YouTube and streaming stuff. Yeah, a couple of quick things there that I thought were super interesting. Uh, first and foremost, so I guess I I did error earlier uh, in the podcast when I said that the Spotify was the most popular streaming service because actually if you uh, uh, look closely at, at streaming numbers, YouTube uh, beat Spotify uh, pretty aggressively, uh, 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 aggressively, pretty significantly um, uh, when you compare them as, as music streaming services. And I guess that's something that relatively early on um, I know that, that uh, before Spotify was really popular, YouTube was a way that a lot of people were streaming things in the background, uh, um, including full albums and sometimes playlists. But the reason why I mentioned that is is because YouTube is is just becoming such an important uh, part of, or is it's become uh, an important part of the media fabric. And um, I'm not going to go on my regular rant about the necessity of unblocking it because I think that that it's a discussion we can need to continue to have. But don't count out the fact that YouTube is still the top category in so many ways. And in fact, I paired that last week with an article that talks about how uh, YouTube is also um, a, a massive gaming. Uh, uh, cha- uh, set of channels and they have 40 million active gaming channels, which is a bewildering number to me. Uh, and they over the year, uh, 2020 had 100 billion hours of gaming watch time, which is people watching other people play games. There was another interesting article from the verge today that said that 2020 was the year of the Twitch streamer. So there's a hundred billion hours being watched on YouTube, and apparently it's not as much as was watched on Twitch this year, which is Amazon's um, uh, a game streaming property. I guess I, you know, maybe I'm old. Um, no, I am old. I'm old. 
So I don't get the watching other people's play games thing, right? Like I like playing video games. I don't like watching other people play video games. I want to play them myself, but I would probably argue that especially in a work at home environment and, uh, uh, in an era where we've told kids to stop hanging out with one another because of potential risk to doing so, it's certainly a very social way to engage with one another in regards to uh, 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 watching people play games. And there are hundreds of influencers on Twitch that have made full-time careers somehow of playing games online with sponsorships and ultimately in tournaments. And, you know, don't doubt video gaming is here to stay. Absolutely. Our 23-year-old son loves to watch gaming, uh, gaming videos, so... Uh, I see that happening, you know, several times, you know, several times a week when I, when I happen to, to, to look. So, but it's, I mean, I, games are okay. I'm really not a gamer. So I kind of don't, don't, I, although I'm playing words with friends quite a bit, but see that that's in a completely <laughs> different category that, that by itself says, this is an old guy who is not with it probably. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, then take it to another school level. Uh, these are competitive sports. Okay. Um, yeah. kids, kids can thrive in a lot of different things. I had a student this week. We did a really fun Minecraft activity where my Spanish students had, we had, uh, each class had built a house together and then we had labeled as many different things in the house as we could because we've been working on that vocabulary. And then yesterday, um, we switched and each class got to have a photo scavenger hunt and go in with a camera and a portfolio and take selfies in front of as many signs as they could and, and label these. Anyway, I had a student who absolutely thrived and did so well in that environment. He obviously has played a lot of Minecraft, but you know, it's not just about regular sports athletics. There's other kinds of competitive intercollegiate activities and esports is huge. I know the University of Oklahoma has a sizable program and I think most large universities are doing that. So what are you doing for, for esports? And then how are you finding ways to bring uh, the love of gaming and the engagement uh, of, of virtual environments, you know, into the classroom and learning. Uh, Minecraft education, I would put forward, is a wonderful way to do that. Um, so if you're not checking that out at your school, that would be something else to put on your to-do list for 2021. Okay, really quick. We only have two minutes. Uh, I'll just throw these two articles out here. Uh, Roger McNamee, who I've been, I've said his name enough, but Tristan Harris is one of the co-founders of the Center for Humane Technology. Roger McNamee is the other one. Um, and he's, you know, they're behind the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma. He was on this interview with NBC Universal. Um, the, the headline is Roger McNamee on disinformation spread. Everyone is isolated in their own Truman show. Uh, one of the things that I had not heard anybody else say was comparing what's happening right now with social media companies pushing buttons and pulling levers as like, 13th Amendment stuff that tried to, you know, of course, outlaw slavery, but that we've got people's minds, you know, being controlled by social media to an unprecedented level. And we need to, to do something about that. And then the other article is from Reuters. This was on December 1st. From hate speech to nudity, Facebook's oversight board picks its first cases. 
And so kind of like the this article I, I referenced about Google and its ethics oversight board, which doesn't seem to maybe, you know, be very effectual. Uh, Facebook has an oversight board. They can overrule the company's decisions to remove certain pieces of content. The board has received over 20,000 cases since it opened up in October, and they've decided to rule on six cases of the 20,000. And so um, this, you know, speaks to to censorship, moderation of content, self-policing and whether or not platforms are going to be able to self-police to an extent that it's going to be found to be adequate, you know, by the public, by government regulators, et cetera. So the tech correction marches on and it certainly is going to be important and interesting in 2021 to track this issue as we have for several years now, and especially seeing where these lawsuits are going to go that we've talked about on the show. All right, sir. How about a geek of the week? Sure. I just want to point out an interesting announcement the other day from T-Mobile. Um, T-Mobile is now offering a 5G hotspot. So that is a, an, a, a mobile connected hotspot that provides a hundred gigabytes of data a month, which is huge. Um, it's not quite going to be a complete uh, internet replacement if you are a daily or media dominant user of your internet, but it's only $50 a month, which I think is super awesome. If you are in the midst of, of work at home or learn at home and uh, you need additional bandwidth or you are trying to use your cell phone for that, trying to use it as a hotspot and it's, it's capping out in data, uh, I would strongly suggest looking at the T-Mobile hotspot. I'm not per se in the business for this myself, uh, in part because I, I don't leave my house right now, but um, a really interesting deal and something to look at if you're interested in some mobile connectivity. And consider the fact that it wasn't too many years ago that AT&T and other carriers were enforcing really severe five gig you know, yeah. per month caps. And if you were over that, I mean, you, <laughs> I had a very unpleasant conversation with someone, um, you know, this is before tethering was possible without jailbreaking. And so they were just, you know, I, they were grilling me about, you know, tethering and how, how could I be using that much data? And anyway, here we are with, with data plans that are, you know, whatever, whatever <laughs> times that is 20, 20 times uh, larger. That's a, that's an incredible jump. Um, so two very quickly, um, this is sort of referencing what we talked about with Google being down. In addition to the website to check Google status, uh, I don't know if we've had this one before as a geek of the week, downdetector.com is a great website to use and it will test to see whether it's just you or whether this particular website that you cannot access or is, you know, super slow or whatever is not uh, working. And then on the security front, talking about hacks and compromises, I actually had an interaction with Troy Hunt this week, who is the creator of HaveIBeenPwned.com. Some of my sixth graders were very suspicious that words like hi and hello that were not email addresses are in the database. And so I tweeted him and he replied back that he used to put Snapchat handles and Instagram handles in there. And that's why some of those are in there. Well, uh, in the course of reading a lot on his website, I found uh, HaveIBeenPwned.com slash passwords, which lets you put in any password which you have used or might want to use. And it will tell you whether or not that password has been compromised in whatever millions of, of, of files that it has. So unlike the regular search for an email, it doesn't tell you these are the hacks that it was compromised in, but it will tell you how many times it has. And so, for instance, <laughs> this is a good activity. We all have that that password that we've used for a long time. Oh, we love it. We want to keep using it. 
put that password into this website and see how many times the, I put my favorite password in there and it's been in 36 different hacks. So that's one of the ones that we need to do the Jason Knifer, you know, New Year's resolution, audit your passwords, use the Google Chrome password check, the watchtower, whatever one password and, and LastPass calls it. Get rid of your old passwords and get some unique, long, complex passwords put in their place with a password manager. Said by the podcast that is not sponsored at all at this point, but definitely wants to promote your security and improve our general level of security in life. So, Jason, where can we find you when you're not here on Wednesday night? Well, right now I'm on HaveIBeenPwned.com slash passwords, and my old favorite password has been uh, uh, pwned uh, 87 times. But when I'm not on that website, you can find me on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. Uh, uh, this week, uh, uh, NCC announced the save the date. Uh, March 17th to 20th is NCCE 2021. Please uh, join us uh, for a virtual conference experience like no other. They're working with some great folks to bring a uh, really great experience this year. And to find out more, you can go to www.ncce.org. Org. And you, Dr. Fryer. I am W. Fryer on Twitter, continuing to share my curriculum at mdtech.cassidy.org. And maybe once or twice a month, which I haven't been doing very much of, I will post on speedofcreativity.org. So we want to encourage you to visit edtechsr.com for small MP3 as well as smaller, uh, about 100 uh, meg video versions. You can always find us on YouTube and subscribe there. We are edtechsr on the Twitters. And as far as I know, we'll be continuing through the holidays. But if we end up making a change to our schedule, we will be posting that on Twitter for sure and usually on Facebook as well. We want to thank Peggy George for joining us as always. Thanks to Eric Langhorst, who was with us earlier and for checking in. Uh, we want to encourage you, if you can, join us live. We're here uh, Wednesday nights at 10, well, 10 o'clock Eastern, uh, 9 o'clock Central, 8 p.m. Mountain. And if you are on the Pacific time zone. I think Peggy may be in California. I guess that would be seven o'clock. So whatever time it might be, you can always get the on-demand version. Ask any of your favorite smart speakers to play the latest episode of the EdTech Situation Room and be amazed by their voice-to-speech technology and the fact that we're able to actually be pretty much on all those platforms. So until next time, we hope you have a safe and wonderful holiday season, uh, whatever traditions and hopefully vacation and rest that will mean for you. And we hope to see you next time here on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night.